Alright lads, okay, uh, we are going uh, to be talking about uh, Heidegger today. We're going to be talking about Heidegger who is a person. This is not really the most important thing though. We will mainly be talking about his concepts of being and the ultimate concern of tillage. Essentially, just for some background knowledge, Heidegger was a German philosopher in um, the 20th uh, century. He, he also slept with Hannah Arndt, another influential philosopher who was his student. So there was a bit of dodgy nature going on there, but that is kind of how things are perhaps. So um, now that we've talked a bit about who Heidegger uh, was as a person, we do, it doesn't really matter too much. I think uh, we can then go on and talk about Heidegger's being. And of course, if you have any questions, just raise your hand and uh, let me know. I'll happily answer them. Wait, so, check out the head of Prize Society right now. Sorry, sorry. Where? But oh, oh, well, let's just continue this uh, discussion. Heidegger's being. So essentially, this is what we're trying to talk about today, which is a cause of Dasein. And this is what um, in German means Sein and Da, their being. Sein being there and, no, I mean Sein being being and um, Da being there. And this is basically the core concept of Heidegger's existentialism. Is that German? Yes, it is a German. Oh, okay. Existentialism being the discussion about the meaning of life, or at least the purpose, what does it mean to be human? And Heidegger, of course, this ties in with phenomenology. Phenomenology being um, the discussion of experience. What does it mean to experience something? When I'm touching this ball, it's not just a physical ball being a circle. I mean, there's phenomenological significance to this. The same goes with suffering. There's more to suffering than just the pain stimuli. We find meaning in suffering. We experience suffering. Suffering interacts at a higher level, perhaps. And that's phenomenology. And as a result, being there is core in his existentialism and his phenomenology. In order to be, as humans, we must be there. We must exist in the world. And as a result, all the time when he talks about being, it's always being in the world. Do you have any questions there about being, first of all? Or at least this idea of what it means? How are we defining being? So, a Cartesian skeptic, you said, um, the cogito, I think therefore I am. That is a, a more of a discussion about how do we know what is true. But what Heidegger is discussing here, perhaps, is that, well, that question is insignificant when it comes into consideration with the question of being, of what is actually in the world, both as a phenomenological pursuit and as a pursuit about meaning and about a physical pursuit. For example, the question of what is there in the world can say, well, what is there in this room is uh, some humans, some uh, homo, homo sapiens, but what is actually there in the world is the being in the world that is people with significance. Alicia is not only just a random person, but she has existential significance. She has her culture, she has her societal constructs, her uh, backing. She, is, she means different things to different people who interact with her. That is her being. And in the same way, everything in this room has its being. And when we're talking about what is there in the world, what is there in the room, we're talking both on the level of the physical uh, plane, but also in this discussion of what is there as being in the world. And that's how things are being interacted with each other. And as a result, he says being is objective. It actually exists. It exists depending on whether we're there in it or not. A rock would always either be a rock, but also have further things in it. If the entire world went extinct, there was no more humans, this pen would not only just be a few bits of ink together, but it also has some significance in the world, apart from just being a mere pen. And, and in the same way, an art would have more being a part of it, even if humans didn't exist. It's objective in that sense. Okay, so in that sense, you would say after you die, okay, let's say you die, right? Then after you die, you're still alive, because your memories in the people are still alive. 
But then after everyone who has known you or known of you has died, then you actually have died because the memories of you in the people and the people who had memories of you, they died. So that means you died with, yeah. So basically what you're saying is that who you are is kind of defined by your relationships and what people feel of you. Mm -hmm. It's less so about what people view of you, but rather what is the significance of you. So, like your significance in the world, of course, will be your social cultural outcome, but that doesn't change based on people's perception of you. You will still have being, even after you're dead, so it's not dependent necessarily on whether people are alive or not. Of course, people experiencing you from a first-person perspective would see a different status of you, and your, and your interpretation might be different. But then it, the only thing which changes when they die is that interpretation, not necessarily yourself. Hello? Okay, so it's, it's not necessarily how you interact physically with people. It could be also be like your impact on the world. Like, if I snap my fingers and solve world hunger but no one knew it was me, I would still have a great sense of being because I've solved a really big issue but no one knew it was me. Like, I haven't interacted with anyone. In a sense, but my impact on the world has been Right, kind of Definitely, there is some sense of being both as what people view, and there's also being as in um, how you interact with the world, and that's all about the concept, the struggle of being in the world. Conrad? It's more struggle of being. Does it also take into account your impact on objects and stuff? Because if I were to move a pen and disappear from the world, my impact is moving a pen from one table to the other. So is there still some semblance of me in the world? Because I Change you definitely do have an impact in the world, and this is what Heidegger talks about as us, us being shepherds of being. We're meant to interact with this being and guide it in some degree. We're meant to interact with it. And, and of course, there is a way to interact with the world on a physical level. There is also a way to act and interact with the world in a phenomenological level, changing the constructs of meaning in our lives. That's also a way of interacting with being and guiding it. Of course, it's objective in the sense that it's out there and it doesn't depend on humans. We also have the role as humans to interact with it and develop it further. And perhaps one way to interact with this is the concept of the idea of the existential and the existenziale. And then one of them is the discussion of your being a personal being, and the other one of it being an idea of the structure of human existence. We as humans ex experience this existential, and that is the point of us, well, we as beings are beings in the world. This is the conception of humans as a dilemma as a whole. Now, existential, is our, is our personal experience of being. And there's a constant match between the two and a constant interaction between the two. And in order to illustrate this, we can turn to Kierkegaard's discussion of the crowd. And to Kierkegaard, you could say, the crowd, people either view the crowd as truth or crowd as untruth. The crowd is truth in the sense that perhaps what the society views as true is dependent on those who are interacting with that which is true in the world. For example, back in the old days, they would say, what is true is that the world was flat. The crowd dictates what is true. Now they say it's round. The crowd dictates what is true. The crowd is truth. However, another way to say is that the crowd is by definition untruth. Why is that the case? It's because when you moment you say the crowd is untruth, it is to say that the crowd itself cannot judge fully what we experience. Every one of our interaction with being is different. And precisely because it is different, then no matter how you try to follow the crowd, it will never represent fully what you experience. It will never fully represent exactly how one person is meant to find the truth or uncover being in his own way. We all have different paths. Of course, Kierkegaard is a Christian, 
to say we all have different paths to salvation, or at least this idea of being one with God, a freedom in God, perhaps. And as a result, since everyone has an independent way, it is impossible to say, well, let's just follow the crowd, because even if the crowd is correct, as in the leader of the crowd is correct, it doesn't follow that everyone else in the crowd is correct as well. Carl? The shape of the world isn't a subjective personal experience. It's an objective mm-hmm. thing that we can physically view through signs, satellite pictures. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, the whole... Uh, the crowd isn't always untrue. Like, mm-hmm. most people do believe the world is a unique round, mm-hmm. and that is true, because we can see that. Mm-hmm. So, well, mm-hmm. how does that, like, work with that? Perhaps what Kierkegaard is trying to say when the crowd is untruth is less so about the first type of the world is flat, the world is round, though of course it really depends on how we're defining truth here, but rather we're talking about truth in a phenomenological way, in the sense of how does that change our status of being and our understanding of being in the world. And that is a true difference in uh, our discussion about what does it mean as a crowd being untruth. The crowd is untruth because it can misguide people to follow what is not leading them to salvation or or um, an experience of the objective, because everyone's experience and interaction has to be different. And by making it the same, it makes it untrue to them. It kind of links back to when we talked about CRT last time, mm-hmm. where like everyone's experiences are different, and you can't group everyone together mm-hmm. under one like, oh, you're oppressed and you're not oppressed, or you're going to mm-hmm. be fine, but you'll encounter this, but everyone's mm-hmm. different. So it, it's kind of like crap, that's kind of like, it's kind of like a big one group identity, except rather than saying, Oh, we group all these people together by race, group all these people together by gender. This guy is like grouping everyone together, which is even more silly. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you, and I think that that is exactly what Kierkegaard is talking about when he says the crowd is untruth. It's precisely this idea that it, you can never view the struggle of one person as a struggle of the crowd, and in the same way, you can never view the solution of the crowd as the solution of the individual. And those are always two different things. And perhaps we could now talk a bit about tillage. And Tillich is also a German philosopher who is deeply interested in Heidegger. He basically said, we all have courage to be in the world. Instead of just being in the world, in order to bear this cross, perhaps, we must first have courage to bear the cross. To carry the burden is to first have courage to carry the burden, to accept the burden on ourselves. And in some sense, he says, well, we are all philosophers, we are all religious, because in order to live, you're first answering a question of being, you're answering a question of philosophy, the fundamental phenomenological question. Why are we living? Why are we here? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you going to school? You're not skiving the entire day. Of course, some people in our school just skive to go vape or whatever the hell it is, but but, I mean, that's a different concern. Like, why are you doing what you do and how do you prioritize your life? That's why he says we're all religious people and we're all philosophical beings. Do you have any questions about Tillich so far? What do you mean about all religions? And this, of course, depends on what you mean by religious. And to understand religious, you need to understand the ultimate concern. Ultimate concern to Tillich is what is the most important thing in your life. And in that sense, he says, well, that everyone is religious precisely because everyone is trying to answer the ultimate concern of their lives. This, to the theist, could be, well, my ultimate concern is God, and God is dictating my beliefs in the world. To um, an atheist, their ultimate concern could be to disprove God. That disproving God is their ultimate goal in their life. And that would be their ultimate concern, they would be religious. It is that which dictates all of our lives, and we all have something which dictates all of our lives, whether we like it or not. Somewhere deeper down in your own thinking, there will always be something which dictates or kind of acts as the highest kind of concern or the highest kind of standard of morals and um, values in your life. Could it, something, could it be something quite simple, like 
I don't want to be hurt, or like I don't want to get punched, I, I don't want to get physically hurt by someone else, or if you're looking at long term, like I want to be able to retire comfortably. And yes, and in that situation you could say, well, maybe money is one's ultimate concern. Maybe money is that which dictates their life in the highest possible way. So yes, indeed, it is correct. Uh, you could say that um, ultimate concern is indeed their highest concern, or money may be their highest concern in this case. And of course, then that ties into the idea of preliminary concerns. Because preliminary concerns will always be that which is, which is dictated from your ultimate concerns. They're tied in in some sense. There's the horizontal and the vertical. You're... The ultimate concern goes down from top down, as in this value judgment, and also the preliminary right, concern is tied onto it. <laughs> Wait, sorry, that just looked like a really weird shape. It, it looked like just a scribble. Can you? Yes, yeah, like a really weird scribble for a second. Indeed, I was just trying to talk about perhaps what it meant to be preliminary. <laughs> Studying to X Math Society. Yes, indeed, but I was thinking about talking about it as a preliminary concern, and the preliminary concern is the individual interactions that you have in the world, which go beyond the, the mere ultimate concern, perhaps, as your interactions with the world. Let's pass the ball and increase our philosophy skills. I think it does increase your thinking. Okay, so do, you have any, so do you have any questions about what we've discussed so far? Wait, so, basically, <laughs> okay, Tillich is a guy who, like, agrees with, like, with being and, but he said that we are all religious. Yes, we are all religious. But I still don't get that in that sense. We're all religious because we are, we're all philosophers, he says, first of all. We're all philosophers because we answer the question of being. We're all experiencing the world, we're interacting on the world beyond the physical plane. And via the fact that we're going beyond the physical plane, we're all philosophers because we're answering the question of being. Now the second question is then, tied onto that as well, why are we all religious? Because in order to answer the question of being, we're discussing our ultimate concern. And by discussing the ultimate concern, we all then become religious. Do you have any questions? Why does it, sorry, why does it mean, why does discussing the ultimate concern make you religious? Because what ultimately is a religion? A religion or a religious person is someone who believes full hearts wholly in a single idea or a concept. And, and uses that concept as something which dictates and helps his life carry forward. And in some way, that concept is precisely the ultimate concern. And in some sense, everyone has it. And that's why when anyone talks about their meaning and purpose, they're all talking about a religious concept. And they're all, ultimately, they're all religious. So, in simple terms, what, what it is trying to say, if you have morals, then you are religious. Well, I mean, it goes beyond that. Like, you don't even need to like have morals to, to be like, terrible. Yeah. Kind of like a, like a goal. Like, if you have, like, something you want to achieve or something you want to yeah, base exactly. your life around. If you follow a goal, then you are religious. Yeah, in some degree. Then, can, you know, like, like you said before, everyone's different. So how, can we, how do we know everyone has an ultimate concern to begin with? Because the fact that they're living in the world presupposes that they do have some meaning. Well, what if someone just, like, you know, a very spontaneous person... But isn't ultimate concern like a goal or like a thing you really believe in? Isn't it just like, it, it doesn't mean like your meaning, right? It's not what you mean, what do you represent. It's like a goal or something you live towards that you believe in. No, but then, yes, but then everyone has one. Is. Even if one's main core is their spontaneity, that is their um, meaning and the ultimate concern, perhaps. Yeah, I just, I just took this out because like, there's a bunch of stuff here. Like, doing, doing anything like there's no meaning, I was that would be your ultimate concern to be nihilist. And that would be your religion to be nihilist. Okay. Like, I always thought of it as 
I agree with Felicia because I thought of it as a compass. I thought to be kind, that's the best thing to do. If you don't have a religion, just be kind, do good. Apparently that's the thing. And according to Tillich, that would be the ultimate concern for me. And according to Tillich, I would be religious. I just thought of it as I follow a moral compass. But that's just how I said Tillich is one of me. I guess it's all an ultimate concern now. I think the main the main point comes down to how do you define religion? Because if you define religion, yeah. it all depends how you define. Because if you define religion as a something you have like a key, oh, something you have like a key like aspect or like a key like desire or something you base your life philosophy around, or if it, even if it is like a life philosophy, even if it's something like just remain calm or under pressure or like literally anything, it doesn't need to be you know some some bloke in the sky who created everything and gives you free will and gives you commandments and stuff. That doesn't need to be religious. It can, yeah. Religion can really just be like any like life philosophy. And by that, by that definition, I guess. Yeah, most people would be religious. Yeah. They just don't really want to admit. Like, I, I, when you look at that, when you take it like that, the LGBTQ community is the most religious thing on the planet because okay. their entire before, philosophy. Before we get into that, I think yeah, we would be like the definition of religion. Because when you say religion, you mainly think about like the traditional sense, like mm. for example, like Christianity, Christianity like yeah, exactly, Islam, like Hinduism, yeah. like different religion religions. The funny one. Yeah, but <laughs> if you if you if you phrase it like okay. Being religious means like you kind of that what we talked about. Then yes, I think that we're all religious. Yeah. Okay, and I think that this is a good place to end our discussion. I hope you enjoyed, and I'll see you soon.